0: Federal regulators recently signed a $400,000 HIPAA settlement with CARE New England Health System, or CNE, citing the lack of an updated business associate agreement with a hospital under its ownership for which it provides corporate services, including information security support. That hospital, Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island, or WIH, reported a breach in 2012, after CNE lost unencrypted backup drives containing data of 14,000 patients. So why did CNE get reprimanded by the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights for not having a BA agreement? I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Privacy Attorney Adam Green of the law firm Davis Wright Tremaine. Adam will explain why business associate agreements are needed in circumstances that don't necessarily involve clear-cut business associate relationships. So, Adam, for starters, in its investigation into the breach involving Women and Infants Hospital, OCR discovered that the hospital and CNE had signed a business associate agreement in 2005, but that it hadn't been updated in compliance with the HIPAA omnibus rule, which went into effect in September 2013. However, OCR, in its resolution agreement with CNE, says that CNE is an affiliated covered entity of the hospital, not a BA. So what is an affiliated covered entity, and why is there a need for affiliated covered entities like CNE to have a business associate agreement with covered entities like Women and Infants Hospital, which are part of their own
1: same company? It's a complicated set of facts, and I'm not sure that in this case the parent entity, C&E, was actually part of the affiliated covered entity, and I think that's part of the problem. So every healthcare system with multiple legal entities is going to be somewhat different. But picture this as an example. You've got a parent entity, and that parent entity may provide various levels of support to its subsidiaries. The subsidiaries may be the actual hospitals or medical clinics and may actually provide the health care, whereas the parent corporation, the parent entity, does not actually provide health care, but it provides legal support, compliance support, IT support. The, the privacy and security officers may be Employees and part of the parent entity, and so you'll have this relationship where you'll have a parent that doesn't technically qualify as a covered entity because it's not a healthcare provider and it's not a health plan or a healthcare clearinghouse in most cases. And then you'll have its subsidiary organizations, which may be wholly owned members, um, where you're talking about nonprofits, and that's where the actual healthcare providers, or in some cases also health plans. May reside, and so those will be covered entities. And under HIPAA, when you've got multiple covered entities under the same common ownership or control, such as in this example, they can form an affiliated covered entity. And there's benefits to doing so because by forming an affiliated covered entity, or an ACE for short, you can best maximize information sharing, and there's at least a, a strong argument that you'll reduce your liability if there are system-wide problems. But only covered entities can be part of an ACE, and so the parent entity in this case would not be part of the ACE because it's not a covered entity. It's not a healthcare provider, health plan, or healthcare clearinghouse. And that's where you get into, I think, the sort of situation that we may have seen in this most recent case, which is while we traditionally think of business associates as our vendors, a parent entity that is providing support services to its subsidiaries or wholly owned members is actually going to qualify as a business associate, even though it may be essentially controlling those underneath it in the corporate chain, it will qualify as a business associate when it's not itself a covered entity. And so in this example, you may have multiple subsidiaries who may qualify as an ace if they choose to designate as an ace, but they should have a business associate agreement with their parent entity if the parent entity is not itself a covered entity. Now, I've seen other healthcare systems where this is different. So for example, sometimes the parent entity is actually a healthcare provider itself. And in a case like that, it could be part of the ACE. But that is not always the case. And so you have to look at, for each legal entity, is that legal entity a covered entity? And if so, it potentially can be part of the ACE. And if not, is it providing support services to one or more covered entities, in which case it's going to be a business associate? And then one more thing to add here is that business associate should, of course, have a business associate agreement. And the Omnibus Rule required some admittedly pretty minor changes to update business associate agreements. And while the compliance date for the omnibus rule was September of 2013, if you had an existing business associate agreement in effect, you were grandfathered, if it was a compliant business associate agreement, and given an extra year until September of 2014 to update your business associate agreement. So in this recent settlement, they indicated that the business associate agreement was not updated in September 2014, which is the end of that kind of grandfather period that omnibus rule provided. So that's why they used the date of September 2014 rather than September 2013 for when the business associate agreement should have been updated.
0: Now under HIPAA, there are also relationships called organized healthcare care arrangements or OCA's. What is an OCA? And please give an example of a type of OCA and when do OCA's have to worry about BAAs?
1: Organized healthcare arrangements, there, that's essentially an arrangement in which multiple covered entities participate in kind of certain joint activities. And there are different forms of OCAs, and so one form of an OCA is a clinically integrated setting where individuals would expect to receive care from more than one covered entity. So an example of that, really the archetype of that, is a hospital and physicians who have privileges at the hospital. They're not employees of the hospital, they're they're generally not members of the workforce of the hospital, but when you go to a hospital, you're expecting that you're going to receive services from physicians with privileges at the hospital. And so that's one type of OCA. Another type of OCA is a joint arrangement where multiple covered entities hold themselves out to the public as participating in a joint arrangement, and that joint arrangement involves joint quality assessment and improvement, joint utilization review, or financial risk sharing that involves the need to share protected health information. So the original archetype of this was an IPA, an Independent Physician Association, where to the public it may look like these physicians are essentially acting together as a medical practice but they're not technically in a partnership or a single entity. And so you have the second type of OCA that was created to, sh- to allow potential sharing of protective health information for financial risk sharing, kind of distribution of income amongst physicians in that example, or joint quality assessment activities. More recently, we see accountable care organizations as a good example of this second type of OCA, where entities hold themselves out to the public as participating in an Accountable Care Organization network and will do joint quality assessment, financial risk sharing amongst the different participants, so that's a second type of OCA. There are a few other types of OCAs that relate to group health plans, where they may be, for example, they may have the same plan sponsor. And the benefits of an OCA is generally that you can better share information amongst members of the OCA than if they were not involved in an OCA. So for example, when one covered entity shares protected health information with another covered entity for the recipient's healthcare operations, there are certain conditions that have to be met. But if they're members of the same OCA, and they're doing this for the OCA activities, you don't have to meet those conditions. For example, you may not have to have that each individual has a relationship with both covered entities. A second benefit of an OCA is you can have a joint notice of privacy practices, which is incredibly valuable in some cases, such as without that, if you went into a hospital, you'd have to receive the notice of privacy practices from the hospital, but also each physician who provides services to you each anesthetist, radiologist, etc., and so you'd be drowning in notices of privacy practices pretty quickly versus uh, organizing as as an OCA, you can receive a joint notice of privacy practices that's going to cover everyone at that hospital. For other OCA's, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a joint notice. So, for example, in an accountable care organization network, it may not make sense to have a joint notice. And then the third benefit of an OCA is that you don't necessarily have to have business associate agreements with each other when you're performing kind of mutual OCA activities, so joint quality assessment. There's some question, though, as to whether you still have to have business associate agreements with each other if the different covered entities are doing things that are not kind of for the joint benefit of the OCA, but exclusively for one entity's benefit. So an example of this is a hospital and a physician with privileges, they're members of an OCA, they don't need a business associate agreement with each other when doing joint OCA activities like joint peer review. But if you have the hospital providing an electronic health record to the physician or providing billing services to the physician where that's not really a joint activity, it's really just the hospital doing something strictly for the benefit of the physician, and it could go the opposite direction too, there's at least some risk under the regulations that you'd need a business associate agreement there. Now, generally when you have an ACE, You don't need an OCA because almost all the benefits that I described for an OCA, you can actually obtain by organizing as an ACE. So an OCA is oftentimes more beneficial where you're not under common ownership or control.
0: And very briefly, Adam, I understand there's also hybrid covered entities. Where do they fit in?
1: So a hybrid entity would be, for example, an entity that has lines of business that are not health provider or health plan. So a good example of that might be a grocery store where it's got a pharmacy, and the pharmacy is the only thing that makes it a covered entity. And so you can designate as a hybrid in that case, in which case only certain parts, like only the pharmacy, would be subject to HIPAA, and the rest, like the front of the grocery store, would not be subject to HIPAA. And where you have multiple entities that are under common ownership or control but are hybrid entities, you can essentially form an ACE just amongst the covered components. And so, for example, if you've got multiple supermarkets that are under common ownership or control but are separate legal entities, you may designate that only the pharmacies are the healthcare components, and so that's essentially designating as hybrid entities, and then you can form an ACE, an affiliated covered entity, with just those pharmacies so that the rest of the supermarkets are essentially outside of HIPAA, while the pharmacies of these different supermarket legal entities that are under under common ownership or control are treated as if they're one pharmacy chain.
0: So Adam, with all these complicated relationships, affiliated covered entities, OCA's, hybrid covered entities, and the information sharing that takes place, there seems to be risk involved with the sharing of information. So who is generally considered liable or responsible for protecting the patient's PHI against breaches? All the parties, certain parties, or does it depend on the circumstances?
1: With respect to who's responsible for putting in place a business associate agreement, that's arguably just the covered entity. So, for example, in this recent settlement, they they pointed to WAIH not having put in place a business associate agreement with its parent organization. Now, that's putting in place a business associate agreement, there's nothing that we've seen in the regulations or preamble that suggests that a business associate has to put in place a business associate agreement with a covered entity. So that obligation really falls to the covered entity to put in place a business associate agreement with the business associate. Likewise, Follow a business associate to put in place a business associate agreement with a downstream entity like a subcontractor. Now, in contrast, where you have an impermissible user disclosure, that's generally going to fall to whoever did that impermissible user disclosure. So you could have multiple members of a ACE, for example, and you can have a business associate. You're going to look to who made the impermissible user disclosure as to who's potentially liable there. There is a provision that says members of an ACE, are jointly and severally liable unless they can prove that it was essentially a different member of an ACE that caused the violation. And that causes some concern sometimes when forming an ACE. But what that's really getting at is if you have a single responsibility, like the responsibility to assign a a privacy officer and you've got multiple members of an ACE, if none of them do that, none of them essentially assigns a privacy officer for the entire ACE, all of them could be held jointly liable for that. And in the
0: circumstance where there is a breach, who's responsible for notification if everybody's sort of a covered entity in some way?
1: If there's a breach at the business associates of a parent, then technically they should report that up to their covered entities, which in this case is actually their subsidiaries that they control. You may want to think about when you're putting in place the business associate agreement, that they will then be responsible, because oftentimes the privacy office might be at the parent corporation, that they will be responsible for ultimately making the covered entity's notifications. So if the parent has a breach, they may be responsible for notifying the covered entity, which is their wholly owned subsidiary, but you could contract in the business associate agreement that they will be responsible for then notifying HHS and affected individuals and the media, although ultimately, if that doesn't happen, it would actually fall on the covered entity, the subsidiary, for not having done those notifications. So you want to look at it that way. Now, on the other hand, if you had a breach at a covered entity within an ACE, for example, so you, you might have three different legal entities that each have a hospital, and one of those hospitals has a breach, then the liability strictly falls on that covered entity, that one hospital legal entity. And the, the other hospitals, even though they may have formed an ACE, would not have any liability in that case because they can point to that that breach strictly happened at the one hospital.
0: So finally, Adam, when it comes to the duty of safeguarding PHI in all these complicated relationships under HIPAA, what's your advice?
1: I think, you know, what's important is, one, have a regular checkup of your organizational structure under HIPAA. Make sure that you've considered whether to designate as an ACE. You've considered whether you need to qualify as an OCA you've considered what business associate agreements you have to have in place and how, for example, a breach would be handled with respect to those business associate relationships. And this can be pretty complicated. So make sure you're working with someone who knows what they're doing to help figure that out. So once you have those checkups, then it's just a matter of making sure everything is implemented, that everyone knows their responsibilities, who's in charge of auditing records, for example, who's in charge of notifications, so that... Nothing is falling through the cracks with the assumption that someone else within the organizational structure is taking care of something.
0: Thanks, Adam. I've been speaking to Adam Green. I'm Marianne kolbasek mcgee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.